Hour number two. Welcome aboard. Pete Callender here. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I appreciate it. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The phone number is 704-570-1110. 1-800-WBT-1110. The email is Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And you can hit me up on the Twitter machine at Pete Callender. Uh, we're talking about crime. And uh, last hour I went over... Uh, some of the local crime stats. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg police chief is going to be going to the city council meeting tonight at 5 o'clock, talking about um, that issue and also violence interruption and intervention programs and a grant that they're looking to get uh, to uh, further fund, to expand the funding of these intervention programs. But there's also a uh, a piece over at The Reload, which talks about the largest ever survey of gun owners which has now provided more statistical power than earlier surveys and much more information about the demographics of gun ownership and use a survey of more than 16,700 gun owners provided updated answers to some of the most pressing questions surrounding guns in America the national firearms survey was conducted last year Updated earlier this year, it examines the breadth of gun ownership and the use of guns throughout the country. It found more minorities and women own guns than previous surveys indicated. Half of gun owners report carrying a handgun for self-defense. Nearly a third report having used a firearm to defend themselves. One third. That is a number that translates to more than 1.6 million defensive uses per year. 1.6 million defensive uses per year. William English, the author of the survey or the report, uh, the Georgetown University professor, he created the survey. He says it's the most comprehensive look at American gun ownership yet produced. Um. He says these gun owners uh, who have defended themselves, the 1.67 million defensive uses, um, again, uh, for uh, for their their person or their their property. This includes the discharge of a weapon, the display of a weapon, or mentioning the weapon. And this excluded military service, police work, or work as a security guard. So this is strictly civilian use. Over at uh, BearingArms.com, Tom Knighton says uh, this is a much lower number, 1.67 million. That's a much lower number than was found by Florida State University's Gary Kleck and Mark Gertz uh, by about 900,000 incidents. He says it should be remembered, though, that we're talking about a study conducted in 1995, the Gleck and Gertz study. In almost 30 years, the violent crime rate has dropped significantly, and as a result, there's less need for a defensive gun use, which likely caused this estimate to be much lower, which is fine. That's good news. This is one of the things, you know, people have a perception about crime, and a lot of that is based on media, right? Media focus, this is the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's sex, it's next. That 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 mantra or, you know, th- this guidance that seems to be uh, the rule in most news departments, uh, that does affect public perception of violence. And so a lot of times now you have people who believe we are more violent now than we were in the 80s. And that's not true. There's been a decline in violent crime going on for decades now. Now, 
we're starting to see an uptick again. <laughs> I wonder why. Um, but it's good news that we've got fewer uses of firearms for defensive purposes, because that probably has some relationship to the decline in violent crime. Um, it's good news. Well, we should point out, as Knighton does at BearingArms.com, that this is good news for people who value gun rights. Right? This is bad news for anti-gun jihadists who prefer to argue that guns aren't actually useful for self-defense. Right? So I give this information to you so you now know it. 1.67 million defensive uses of a firearm in one year. The problem, though, is that a lot of the defensive gun uses are not violent. I mean, well, it's not really a problem. Nobody gets shot. So there's no use in trying to use emergency room numbers of self-defense killings as metrics for successful defensive gun uses. Gun owners also more growing more diverse by the day, which is a good thing also because gun rights are everyone's rights. I always find it hilariously telling when you see gun grabbers or leftists who say, oh, I'm sure if you know black people were going out and getting guns, then all you NRA white people would object. You'd think twice about the Second Amendment. And actually, no, that's not the case. <laughs> the NRA and Second Amendment supporters, I'm not a member of the NRA, but uh, people that are pro-Second Amendment are pro-Second Amendment for all races. Everybody. That's what a, I mean, that's what a basic right is. Everybody gets that right. And in fact, it was in states, Democrat-controlled states, in the Jim Crow era, where a lot of the firearm laws were passed in order to restrict blacks from owning firearms. North Carolina still has the pistol purchase permit system that was put in place specifically for that reason. You've got to go to the sheriff, and the sheriff has to determine you to be of a good moral character and standing in the community. Like how you really, you think the sheriff knows everybody in Mecklenburg County, the sheriff is going to know that about everyone before they issue a pistol purchase permit. Defensive gun use is much more common than anti gunners want us to believe. But crime is historically speaking down. And, uh, we are seeing spikes now, and I asked earlier uh, in the show whether or not this is related to the pandemic. I did get an email here from Joseph. He says, I don't think the lockdowns had nearly as much to do with the rise in crime as the mostly peaceful summer of Floyd did, <laughs> the summer of love, where criminals were emboldened by the prevailing narrative that cops are racist and cannot arrest you. They're just trying to pawn off the explosion and violence to try to excuse the riots and the societal ramifications that happened afterwards. So, Here's where I, I don't think, uh, well, I agree with Joseph and I disagree with Joseph Seema in that I don't think you see the summer of love. I don't think we would have seen that had it not been for the lockdowns. I, I, I believe, and I don't have any you know, empirical data to suggest this, but when you put an entire population on lockdown, you, you know, make everybody stay home, and then all of a sudden... People are, you know, sitting around, well, all of a sudden, people are sitting around watching videos. We're immersed in social media for months on end. And then all of a sudden, something like that happens. That's sort of the spark. And then we get, for political reasons, we get the, the, the apologists 
the excuse makers that say, oh, this is okay because, you know, yes, COVID is going to keep everybody locked down and you can't go to church because COVID knows it's the most brilliant virus ever. It knows if you're in church versus at a street protest getting tear gassed and coughing all over each other. COVID knows the difference, and so it won't smite you down if you're at the Summer of Love protests and and looting and rioting, right? That message went out. People saw that message received loud and clear. So I I think that the, the, the lockdown policy drove the summer of love, I, the, the violence, the riots. Absolutely. I believe they are connected because it was the only socially acceptable way for particularly young people to go out and mix and mingle again that they had been prevented from doing, you know, it, it just as a purely social uh, endeavor. Again, I don't have empirical evidence to support this. I fully acknowledge that, but I think they are connected. I think they are connected. And that message was was received. You can break all these laws and yeah, yeah, you know what? It's okay because it's not your fault. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got a couple of tweets here from Cindy. Last hour we were discussing these uh, violence intervention programs. There's another one on the agenda for the city council meeting tonight. They'll be looking to do another grant, like a million dollars or something. Um, And they, they implemented the violence interrupter program last year. They started with that. Um, And, you know, my question is, is it working? Do these programs actually work? Because if they don't work, then why are we still doing them? Right. And in fact, the people who are the biggest proponents of these ideas, you should be the ones most interested to know the results. Right. Because otherwise, that's money that would be going to a program that might actually reduce the violence. This gets back to sort of a there's a psychological component at play here when people advocate for policies. Uh, It's not even really about the policy. It's why, like, for example, waste, fraud, and abuse in government spending. Do you ever notice the biggest uh, advocates for cutting waste, fraud, and abuse in government spending are Republicans? Not Democrats. But you would think it would be the other way around. It should be, logically, because they're the ones that implemented the programs, usually. They're the ones that advocate for, you know, a more robust government intervention posture. And uh, if they are funding these programs and there's money being wasted or going out the door because of fraud, well, that's money that could otherwise be used to help people. And that's why you said you were doing the program was to help people. So you would think that the people who advocated for the program to help the people would be the biggest uh, you know, examiners of the money to make sure every single dime is being well spent. But that's not the case. It's, it's almost as if, and this is actually borne out by research, there's a, there's a psychological benefit that people get from knowing that others are seeing them advocate for a particular cause. It's not even whether the cause is, is uh, addressed or the problem, rather, is addressed. That's secondary. Then it usually doesn't even matter. The dopamine hit in the brain comes from the knowledge that other people know that you are down with this particular cause. 
that you did your part. That's what people like, you know, uh, uh, to be known. They want to be able to claim credit later and that sort of thing. Anyway, so Cindy says, follow the money. It goes to organizations that manage these program that manage these programs. Real work is done by actual community leaders. They can't get enough on the ground mentors. Lots of new nonprofits, but programs don't do the work. People do. Money grabs happening, in my opinion. Um, that is always the case, by the way, when you start throwing around <laughs> government grant money. Absolutely. Regarding the uh, the story that we did about the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department, Mark Garrison, his big report there on the way CMPD is changing the way it interacts with media. Cindy says, this is such BS spin on what the police will do. Maybe they're going to stop answering the media's questions because the media spins and lies and has created this anti-police sentiment because they are not honest. What CMPD is doing is not about a transparency issue. It's holding media accountable for constantly working against law enforcement with their lies. Um, I understand that perspective. I disagree. What it tells me is that you're not capable, not Cindy, the uh, Twitter user here, but the CMPD and the public information staff is that they're, they are incapable of making their argument. This is what happens. This is why I always say unchallenged ideas are easy to hold, right? You got to get better at messaging. You got to get better at taking on, if a media person comes in with a false framed story, with a narrative, they're pursuing some sort of a story. You need to figure out what that is. You need to push back and you need to be forceful in the way you do it and go right after him for it. I have no problem with that, uh, with an adversarial relationship. But it doesn't mean you get to ignore all the media requests. Unless the, uh, unless they're looking to do a, a story about lock, lock, lock your car before you go far. I mean, literally, you rewrote the words to row your boat. Really? That's what that's what the public information office is doing. Come on. That's just awful. It's like the dancing doctors and nurses during the pandemic. Like, oh, my gosh, we're so overworked. But we had time to work out this choreographed dance. Really? Again, it's the same same beef I have with like the climate change people. You know, when you give up your jets that you're flying all around the world to go attend the climate conferences, when you give those up, then I'll start believing you that it's actually the crisis you say it is. Anyway. All right, on the matter of crime, you know, I asked earlier whether or not you thought the lockdowns had any kind of impact on the escalation of youth violence. I think there is a connection, um, and I think the the riots over the summer of 2020 sent the message along with district attorneys that were funded by these, you know, progressive groups, the, you know, bail reform programs and these types of reforms that are being put in place. They send the message that you can commit various crimes and it's okay. We don't care. And apparently our society needs to relearn these lessons, I guess, every 40 years or so. Right? This gets back to, I mean, I grew up in New York. I mean, I was, you know, 40 miles from the city, but... I remember, like, we didn't go into the city as kids. Like, it was not, it was not something to do. I remember by the time I uh, left New York at the uh, at the old age of eighteen, when I left, uh, 
it was a place that, like, my younger sisters, they started going into the city. They would go out and uh, they had friends and they would go into the city. And that sort of became a thing to do again. But when we were kids, you did not do that. Times Square was terrible. And I remember, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago, Christy and I, my wife, we went in, uh, w- w- went back home to visit the folks. And while we were up there, we said, you know what, let's just pretend we're tourists for the day. We'll jump on the Long Island Railroad and we'll ride it into the city and we'll just spend a day in the city. And it was nice. I mean, aside from all of the people wanting to give us tours all the time. Gosh, they're annoying. And that Elmo guy wanting his picture taken with me and then beating up people. But whatever. Aside from that and the naked cowboy, aside from all of that, it was a very pleasant experience. And we went around and saw the sights It was uh, and it was fun. But that was not the case in the 80s. It was... It was dirty and grimy and crime infested and all of that. And then, you know, Giuliani takes over the broken windows philosophy, which I know people disagree with that. And I'm not an expert, so I don't know if it worked or not. I do know that New York became a more pleasant place. Doesn't seem like it is so much anymore. I'm seeing a lot more videos now of people behaving very, very badly. Anyway, this Washington Times piece, headline carjackings, shootings, murder, Violent underage offenders add to America's crime wave. And uh, it's a piece by Jeff Mordock. And um, the most recently available data, he writes, on violent youth crime is from 2020. That data, compiled by the Sentencing Project, which advocates lower incarceration rates, showed that the number of homicides committed by those ages 10 to 19 actually went up by 1% in 2020 compared with 2019. However, the total number of juvenile arrests dropped by 8%. Mark Levin, Chief Policy Counsel for the Council on Criminal Justice. That's right, I said it. Not him. No, not the, not the show host. Um, he said it's hard to know whether juvenile crime is surging or whether youths are committing higher profile offenses. The number of violent crimes solved by police has decreased since 2020, making it difficult to determine the perpetrators. Now, why is that happening? Why is it getting harder for police to solve crimes? Hmm, that's a brain buster. In several cases, youths and adults committed the crimes together, adding another variable. Now, some municipalities have taken steps to try to address it. One that they always kind of go to is the curfew, right? Winston-Salem, for example, they put a curfew in place. Do curfews work? At least 400 towns, cities, and counties across America have curfews. However, data from the National Youth Rights Association shows that enforcement of the curfew is rare. There you go. It's another example. We're going to pass some laws, and we're not going to enforce them. Right? Well, then I don't see these laws don't work. Curfews don't work. Well, they don't work if you don't enforce them. I'm not advocating you enforce them. I am advocating that you enforce laws that you put on the books. And if you're going to go through the effort of passing a law, then you need to go to the effort of enforcing it. And if you're not going to enforce the law, well, then take it off the books. The move was popular in the 90s when politicians sought to be tough on crime while America was awash in violence. Curfews fell out of favor in the mid-2000s when social justice activists said that they trampled on the rights of black youths. I guess the curfews were only in place against black people. Is that the case or was it? Studies show that curfews, though, do little to curb crime in the communities where they are enforced. Why? Well, a 2016 study by the Campbell Collaboration 
is a nonprofit that reviews public policies, looked at 7,000 studies on juvenile curfews and concluded they were ineffective. Why? Crime rates increased only slightly during curfew hours, and curfews had no impact on reducing crime. Data released this year by the Justice Department's Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention found that violence committed by juveniles ages 7 to 17 is more frequent during school days between the hours of 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. So when they should be in school, till dinner time. That's when they're committing their crimes, which kind of makes sense, right? Hanging out, cut class, after school, meet up, get into trouble. So while, you know, so one of the obvious responses to this would be, yes, after school programs, get them into some of these programs, mentorship opportunities, or how about this? A job. How about that? A job. This is one of the downsides, one of the unintended consequences, if you will, of the whole fight for 15 stuff is that when you, when you force businesses to pay way more of a minimum uh, salary, minimum wage, who are you crowding out? The unskilled younger workers who then are left out on the streets. Kevin McGarry is president of a conservative activist group called Every Black Life Matters. And he said, quote, if all these crimes were committed at night, well, the curfew might have some effect, but I don't see it as a, as a real solution. He said the nation must address the crisis of fatherlessness in black communities. A Justice Department study last year found 72% of adolescents serving sentences for murder are from fatherless households. 72% of adolescents. 60% of rapists grew up without a dad. Meanwhile, more than 72% of black children are born to unmarried mothers. From 1930 to 1950, that was not the case, though. 90% of kids in black households were born to married couples. What happened in the 50s? Government intervention. The government destruction of the family unit. At some point, at some point, the evidence will become so obvious that even progressives will even see it. Maybe, someday, at some point, the evidence will become so obvious that these types of government programs did more harm than good. But get this, everybody, we've got the first statement from Backwheel Rich. I know, we've been all waiting for this. Uh, granted, I'm a couple weeks in, uh, late in relaying it to you, but Backwheel Rich has broken his silence. <laughs> this is one of, the, one of the wheelie boys. Oh, still don't know what I'm talking about? Are you old enough to remember when people on bicycles would be driving all around, riding all around uptown, south end, causing traffic jams, swerving at cars, playing chicken with cars, which that's not actually a very smart thing to do. Cars much bigger, heavier. Although I have seen some photos of some of the riders, so maybe not in all cases. All right. Okay. Never mind. Ryan Allen. According to this uh, story by Ryan Pitkin at QCNerve.com, Ryan Allen uh, was riding with the bike squad. Do you know what the bike squad was? 
These were the people that provided, quote, protection to the protesters, rioters, whatever you want to call it. Now you know who I'm talking about, right? They would riot around the, 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 around the mob and try to keep the cops away and keep people from disrupting the mob as it disrupted everybody else. Right. So Ryan Allen first met Backwheel Rich, a.k.a. Richard Flood, when he was a member of the Bike Squad. Flood was known as Backwheel Rich, um, and he was part of a group known by the protesters, the Bike Squad, being part of the protesters, they were called, and they knew them as the Wheelie Boys. Okay, so you have two different groups. The Wheelie Boys, who would ride alongside the bike squad. And the Wheelie Boys would be doing wheelies. And I guess they were boys. I don't know, did they check the pronouns first or what? But Ryan Allen had recently taken up photography, and he found uh, Backwheel Rich to be a compelling subject. And so they became friends, and he took a bunch of pictures, and he made a book. They... Uh, learn more about the community rideouts that Flood organized and his work with children in West Charlotte, where he grew up on the Beatty's Ford Road corridor. By the way, Beatty's Ford Road. Did they ever catch the all the people that did the murder in there about a year or so ago? No, still? No? Okay. Um, but they're getting more grant money for the Beatty's Ford Road corridor violence intervention. Um, I don't know. Maybe they can intervene in that case. Maybe help out the cops, find out who murdered the people, but whatever. Um in late 2021, Ryan Allen released a collection of photos called This is Richard Flood. He said, I just thought it was somebody that needed to be highlighted. and It was a way to empower him to keep going down the path that he was on, you know, trying to build that community. I think it's important to highlight people that are really community leaders. There's a lot of people that really make Charlotte, Charlotte. And I think Backwheel Rich is one of those people. The city of Charlotte, or at least local law enforcement, disagreed in April 2022 CMPD held a press conference to discuss recent enforcement of groups of individuals recklessly riding on bicycles and motorized vehicles. Police used three unrelated incidents, um, one where uh, someone on a bike shot somebody in a car, another where a kid on a scooter flashed an airsoft gun, and a third in which somebody on a dirt bike allegedly used a Molotov cocktail against eh, nobody in particular, so, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, to announce that they'd be cracking down on folks like the Wheelie Boys. The implication that these incidents prove that all the young men riding their bicycles regularly in Uptown were part of a criminal gang. Uh, either that or no, they saw that there was a pattern of escalation occurring. And CMPD decided, uh, hey, this is getting more and more out of control, and so now we're going to start cracking down on the behavior that sets the tone for the bad stuff to occur after. So on July 31st, CMPD did a big crackdown, a proactive patrol to confront serial offenders. Dozens of officers on dirt bikes flooded the streets in search of reckless bike riders, arresting two, a 15-year-old and backwheel rich. This is a very, very, very lengthy piece. He says they're put back. Real rich says they're portraying me like I encourage all the stuff that they're saying is going on out there. I don't justify everybody's actions. He's told Queen City Nerve. Um, he acknowledges sometimes things get tense in Uptown when someone riding in the group goes to swerve a car, which is a reference to the games of chicken. 
But he contends neither he nor any of the friends he rides with uh, were familiar with any of the shootings or assaults or anything like that. And then, of course, there's the portion of the story where they uh, they talk about cycling as an art form. It's a sort of urbanist protest of a car-centered world. I think I just saw my brain. My eyes rolling so far back in my head. <laughs> it's an art form. Yeah, okay.